This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Loving Father, in this world so filled with sorrow and suffering, with trials and temptations, I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us by your spirit as we hear your word preached. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I don't know about you, but my eyes have been glued to my screens the past two weeks reading about news of war in Ukraine. It's really been hard for me to focus on much of anything else. With the unjustified and barbaric invasion, we're beginning to feel the tectonic shifts altering the landscape of world politics and of the landscape of Ukraine, and depending on how it all plays out, maybe even world history. One of the articles I read analyzing what's going on, they quoted a former Russian dictator who said this, there are decades when nothing happens, and then there are weeks when decades happen. And this seems to be one of those weeks. We're watching the world shift before our very eyes. And it's been sobering to see how quickly things can change. Last Wednesday, 44 million Ukrainians went to bed in one world, and then they woke up in another one, in war. One Ukrainian in his 20s described his experience like this in uh, one of the podcasts I was listening to. He said, last weekend I was deciding which games to buy for my PlayStation. And today, I'm deciding if I'm going to stay and fight in Russia till my death. It's a pretty drastic change in stakes, he said. Can you imagine? Now, of course, what's happening in Ukraine isn't about us, but we would be foolish not to pay attention to it and reflect on what this situation can teach us. Foreign troops aren't invading America, but our worlds are no less vulnerable than a Ukrainian's. Any of us could go to bed tonight and wake up tomorrow in a strange world. Maybe we would lose our jobs, or our health, or perhaps a loved one. Life can really come at you fast. And if our Christianity doesn't equip us to face this, to face these hard realities, ultimately to face death, then I'm afraid it's not Jesus that we're following, but a cheap counterfeit to Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to look at Luke's gospel, and we're going to see that this story of Jesus in the wilderness equips us to face the trials and the temptations of this life while holding fast to Jesus. And so my plan this morning is first to zoom out a little bit and see where this passage fits into the larger plot line of Luke's gospel. Second, we're going to zoom in and look at the three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, And third and finally, we'll draw out some implications for us from this passage as we enter into this season of Lent. So that's the plan. And when we look at Bible passages, particularly small scenes in the Bible like this, it can be so easy to lose the forest for the trees. 
And so first we're going to zoom out and look at what comes immediately before our passage this morning and then what comes right after so that we can see how it all fits together and really what function this passage is playing in the Gospel of Luke. So our, our passage comes right after the baptism of Jesus and the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. And it comes right before Jesus begins his public ministry in the second half of chapter 4. Now looking back to the baptism, maybe the most important part of this scene is that we learn about Jesus' identity as he's being baptized. When Jesus was baptized by John, we hear the Father's voice billowing from heaven. And the Father's voice says this, he says, you are my son, the beloved to Jesus. And immediately after that, there's a genealogy in the Gospel of Luke, and this genealogy builds on this idea. And there's two genealogies in the New Testament, in in the Gospels. The one in Matthew, which is how the Gospel of Matthew begins, traces Jesus' line back to Abraham. But Luke's Gospel, his genealogy goes back further. He traces it back to Abraham, and then back to Adam, and all the way back to God. Jesus is God's Son. So the baptism and genealogy come right before and then immediately after our passage, we see Jesus living into his mission as the Son of God in the world, preaching and teaching and healing, ultimately giving of himself, giving himself to redeem the world. So the temptation in the wilderness is a bridge. It's a bridge between this declaration of Jesus as the Son of God and a demonstration of what that looks like in the world. And when we see this, we can see what's really at stake, what's going on in the temptations in the wilderness. In the 40 days in the wilderness, the Son of God, Jesus, is preparing for his mission. And the devil knows it. And so the devil throws everything he has at Jesus in order to, as one Bible scholar says, to get Jesus to exploit his identity as the Son of God to divert him from his real mission, saving the world. So then we can see this passage, the temptations in the wilderness, as a kind of rite of passage. The wilderness is where the Son becomes a man ready for his Father's mission. So we zoomed out. Now I want to zoom in and look at the three temptations in greater detail and see how Jesus does this in his battle with the devil. And as we take a closer look at these temptations, I want us to know that there's more going on than initially meets the eye. Luke is doing something deeper. He's pointing at something deeper than just this battle between Jesus and the devil. And so as we go through this, I want you to listen to this very closely and see if you can hear any echoes of other Old Testament stories as we go through this story. We'll come back to this in a minute. But now I want to walk through this passage pretty quickly together, going verse by verse. So in verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 4, the Gospel writer sets the scene for us. He introduces the characters. Jesus goes into the wilderness, and Luke tells us that he doesn't go alone. He goes with the Holy Spirit, And the devil also goes with him. Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. And during this time, he ate nothing. He was famished. Jesus was close to starvation at this point. 
And at his weakest point, this is where the final temptations begin. In verse 3, we read about them. This is the first temptation. The devil said in verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And this first temptation makes total sense. The devil's tempting Jesus with his most obvious need. Use your power to fill your starving belly, Jesus. This temptation is low-hanging fruit, pun intended. In verse 4, Jesus answers him. He says, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. And this phrase, it is written, is a clue telling us that this is a quote. You can see quote marks in the bulletin. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. He's quoting from the Old Testament, and he's quoting this passage from memory. Jesus didn't have a Bible with him in the wilderness. Now, in quoting this verse, Jesus is taking us back to the story of Israel's disobedience in the wilderness. Almost immediately after their spectacular liberation from Egyptian slavery, the people of God begin to doubt God, and all it took was an empty belly. They got hangry out in the wilderness, and they grumbled, and they said, if only the Lord would have just killed us back in Egypt, there at least we had bread to eat and meat to eat. Has God brought us out into the desert, into the wilderness, just so that we would die of starvation? How quickly hunger exposes what's hidden in our hearts. If you've fasted for any period of time, you know this. If you've seen those Snickers commercials with Betty White, may she rest in peace, you know this. Hunger exposes what's hidden in our hearts. And here Jesus shows us what's in his heart, God's word. Jesus probably didn't have the whole Old Testament memorized, but he would have had large chunks of it memorized, especially the Psalms and the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus shows us that his heart is pure. He doesn't take the devil's bait. He trusts his father, not because his belly is full, but because his father has the words of life. So with the first temptation, the devil starts small, but then he goes pretty big. He begins with the base of Maslow's hierarchy, and then he goes in for self-actualization. With temptation number two, the devil is challenging Jesus' ultimate identity and calling and purpose in the world. In verse 5, we read that the devil led Jesus up and showed him in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, if you look carefully at verses 6 and 7, you'll notice that somebody's missing from this deal that the devil is offering Jesus. As one commentator points out, The devil makes five references to himself, three references to Jesus, and no references to God. The heart of this temptation is to claim God's promise to be Lord over all, but to do it without the God who promises. What the devil is trying to do is cut out the middleman, and of course God isn't the middleman, but that's how the devil is trying to portray him. In verse 8, Jesus answers the devil, Again, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
Here, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6.13, a passage that was just read for us. And with this citation, Jesus is taking us back to the story of the golden calf. If you remember, the people of Israel grew tired of waiting for Moses, who was up on Mount Sinai, where God was giving him the Ten Commandments. They grew impatient, and so they took matters into their own hands, and they made the golden calf, and they trusted an idol instead of the living God. In this second temptation, Jesus sees the kingdom and the power and the glory that would one day be his, rightly. And he's tempted to claim it the devil's way instead of his father's. But Jesus doesn't do it. He entrusts himself to his loving father. Jesus is going to wait for God's promises in God's time and in God's way. Now, the devil realizes things aren't working very well for him. And so in the third temptation, we see a shift in tactic. The devil takes a play out of Jesus' playbook, and what he does is uses Scripture against Jesus, and he quotes Psalm 91. In verse 9, the devil took Jesus to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem and said, in quotes, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. He's quoting Psalm 91. He's tempting Jesus here to put God to the test. It's like he's saying this, okay, Jesus, I get it. You trust your father, you love your father. But is your father really worthy of that trust? God himself says that he won't let his precious son get hurt. Well, if your father really loves you, let's let him prove it. But Jesus knows that it's the devil and not his father telling him to jump off a really high building. Jumping would not be obedience to God, and so Jesus doesn't jump. In verse 12, Jesus answered him, again quoting from Deuteronomy 6, It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And with this, he trusts the Father's love and goodness. He knows that God doesn't need to do this spectacle to prove that he loves him. Verse 13, when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. And the next time the devil shows up in the Gospel of Luke is chapter 22, verse 3, where the devil enters Judas. And this is the first domino to fall leading to Jesus' crucifixion. And so what we see here is that this test in the wilderness is preparation. It's practice for that ultimate test when he would face the cross. Now I want to pause here and go back to that question that I asked you a few moments ago about listening for echoes of Old Testament stories as we explored these three temptations. I wonder if you heard any as we went through that. Well, I think if we listen closely, I think Luke clearly wants us to hear echoes from at least two stories from the Old Testament. The first one is the story of Adam and Eve who were in the garden, tempted by the serpent, the devil twisting God's word and trying to tempt God's people, trying to tempt humans to not trust God, to doubt his goodness and his purposes. And the second is the story of Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, where they grumbled for bread and worshiped idols and put God to the test. Now, why might this be significant? Why might Luke want us to hear these echoes of these stories in the Old Testament? 
Well, there's more going on than just sparring with the devil. Luke is showing us that Jesus is repeating or replaying the story of Adam and Eve. He's repeating or replaying the story of Israel in the wilderness in order to redeem those stories. And with them, all of humanity and human history. St. Irenaeus, a second century theologian and bishop, calls this recapitulation. Jesus recapitulates. He replays the story of God's people. Where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeds. Where Israel turned away, Jesus trusts God. Jesus resists temptation, and he passes the test. And in so doing, he proves himself to be the faithful, the true Son of God in the world. And this matters so much for us, and here's why. Again, Irenaeus says this, Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is. Jesus becomes what we are so that we could become what he is. Jesus became what humans should have been but weren't so that we might become what he now is. And what is that? That we might become sons and daughters who are held fast by our loving Father and faithful to him to the very end. This is the foundation of the Christian life. Because Jesus was victorious in the face of life's greatest trials, victorious even over death, we can follow Jesus, the Son of God, with confidence and without fear. This also is the foundation of Lent. And so now as I end, I want to draw some things together for us as we come into this season together. N.T. Wright said, the whole point of Christianity is that it offers a story, which is the story of the world. And the story of the world is the story of a God who so loved those who hated him that he entered into the wilderness of the world so that he could redeem it. Now we have to remember that Jesus did not come to take us back to the garden. Jesus didn't come to take us back to the garden. He came to be with us in the wilderness. And of course, Jesus is going to take us to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, eventually. But until that day, the landscape of the Christian life is wilderness. The landscape of the Christian life is wilderness. It's filled with danger and temptations and trials. The wilderness has a devil prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking people to devour, as the apostle Peter tells us. This is the context in which we live out the Christian life. And if we have any hope of making it through this wilderness filled with unspeakable sorrow and suffering, we need a faith that can see us through. And our passage shows us how. In one of her novels, Madeline Langle describes it perfectly. She says, believing takes practice. Believing takes practice. I think sometimes we often imagine faith as checking the right boxes. God is love, check. God created the world, check. Jesus is God, check. But faith is actually a lot less like acing a multiple choice exam and a lot more like learning how to walk. And it starts with baby steps. Learning how to put one foot in front of the other, avoiding obstacles, and figuring out how to get up when we fall down. Learning to follow Jesus 
in the wilderness, learning to walk after Jesus takes practice. And it also takes practices. And this is the logic of Lent. This is the why of Lent. In their great wisdom, our spiritual mothers and fathers instituted this season of Lent, a 40-day season that's modeled after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And this season is marked by increased devotion to spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, disciplines of denial like fasting, disciplines of engagement like praying and meditating on God's Word, memorizing God's Word. And these disciplines of denial and engagement go together. We say no in order to say yes. We abstain from food or consuming other things to fill ourselves with God. And all of this, this entire process is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus models all of this for us in his temptations in the wilderness. This is why we practice Lent and why we do it every year. The season is a kind of training ground for us. It's a place of practice and practices to help us to walk in the wilderness. This is why we're inviting the church into a series of fasts throughout Lent. And you can read more about those in your prayer guide. I want to end by reminding us of something really important as we enter Lent together. We enter this season of Lent not as a way of earning God's grace, but as a way to grow up into it. We go into Lent not to become God's children, but to grow up as God's children. As Dallas Willard has written, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. And so in Lent, we renew our efforts to follow Jesus, the Son of God, who was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Because he was victorious in the wilderness, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness, as Hebrew 4 tells us. We can approach the throne of grace with boldness and receive mercy and find grace to help in our own times of need. Amen.